0: Really a pivotal uh, passage today. Uh, Some of you, you're going to really prepare to have your minds blown today. Um, Some of you are going to hear some things maybe you've never heard, and I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps and really uh, stay with me today because this could be a paradigm-shifting day for you and in your faith. So here in Galatians 5.1, Paul is kind of summarizing his argument from the previous chapters. Really, this is a hinge verse for the whole book of Galatians. Paul is summarizing in Chapter 5, verse 1, the teaching of everything that we've said every single week, right? And so here's how he summarizes. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Notice that in just that little sentence, the word freedom is there twice. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here's what we know from verse 1 this verse tells us that even though Christ died to set us free, that we can kind of drift over time back into slavery. So our freedom in Christ is something that we have to steward. It's something that we have to live out. That just because Christ has made us free, it doesn't mean that we can't drift back, right, into slavery. So Paul says, stand firm, don't submit to a yoke of slavery. And it's interesting, I want to connect the thought, I really want to connect some dots of what it means Uh, when someone is submitted to a yoke of slavery. So, for example, back in the day, if a rabbi were to teach a set of principles, a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, uh, and you believed what that rabbi taught, you would come under that rabbi's yoke. Uh, His yoke was his view of The scriptures, right? And so a yoke was a really important thing. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, if you try to put the yoke of Moses on, if you try to put the yoke of the teaching of Moses on, you're moving backwards um, and you're adopting a yoke of slavery, not of sonship. And Paul's made this argument. Over and over and over again, one of the things that Craig pointed out last week, right, is that Paul just seems to be making the same argument over and over and over again. And he uses different methods and different analogies and different teaching tools to help us see that if you follow the law given by Moses in the Old Testament, that you're adopting Jesus and something else, And that uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. This is the argument that he's been making. And I want to get very clear about what it means to walk in freedom and what we're walking in freedom from. Okay, so uh, dial in for just a minute. So when someone lived under the law of Moses, the law exposed them for who and what they were, lawbreakers. In other words, the argument that Paul is making is that when someone tries to come into a relationship with God by proving how good they are, how many of the rules that they've kept, when somebody tries to come into a relationship with with God that way, Paul is saying, look, the result is slavery. And here's why. Because you will approach God with anxiety, you will approach God with guilt, and it will be a burden. It will be a burden because you'll never know where you stand with God because you will not be able to keep the law perfectly. Not only will you not be able to do it, there will be times where you won't want to do it. And so the law will expose you as a sinner. And so you're a slave if you approach God out of fear or out of anxiety or out of guilt. Because the law exposes all of us as law breakers, right? So Paul says, look, don't put yourself under that burden or that yoke of slavery to the law. Because if you do, you will view God through the lens, Craig said this last week, you will view God through the lens of a judge. And nobody wants to spend all their free time with a judge right but if you approach god as a son through grace or through faith and trust in jesus christ you approach god from a position of security because you know how god feels about you i demonstrated his own love for you in this. While you and I were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we receive by faith, right? Through trust in God's character. And he says, look, if you approach God, that way you approach God as a son or a daughter. But if you approach God through the lens of the law, you will approach God as a judge every day. And there will be the guilt, the sense that you're inadequate, that you're not worthy, and that you don't measure up. And so if you ever have any of those thoughts, you are under a yoke of slavery. And And Paul's saying, look, there's a better way. You don't have to live your life that way anymore. You can live your life uh, with security before God, your Savior, knowing that you are loved, knowing that Christ has made you worthy. But if you drift, if you revert, and you start trying to prove yourself again to God or prove your worth or your value, or you try to justify yourself to God as, as a better law keeper, than somebody else. Paul says that's a dead-end road and it goes nowhere. All it will produce is anxiety, guilt, and a burden. And in fact, this is mind-blowing to me. Listen, I'm going to cover a lot of passages today, and not all of them are in our outline. But when I look at a passage, listen, if you want to study the early church, one of the most fascinating chapters that you can look at in all of the New Testament is Acts chapter 15. It's sometimes called the Jerusalem Council. And what I want us to see is that the early church, this first generation of followers of Jesus, had to grapple with some of the same issues— that you and I have to grapple with. And so they have this council to try to decide whether they should tell people outside of Judaism whether they have to keep the law or not. And it amazes me that all of these people that were weaned on the law All these people that were taught the law from the time they were little, itty-bitty kids. All these people who were taught all their life that the law was the way to approach God. right? That they would discuss this, and the text is very clear to say that they're led by the Holy Spirit as as they have this discussion, and that they would say, look, no one has to keep the law anymore. It's a new day. And in fact, when Peter's arguing for this, it's right there in Acts 15. Peter says it this way. He says, why should we put anyone under a yoke or an interpretation, right, of the Old Testament like we've believed? Why should we put anybody under a yoke or under a burden that neither we nor our forefathers could bear. In other words, he's saying, look, we, didn't, we knew we couldn't keep it. Our, we know When we read the Old Testament, we can see that our forefathers couldn't keep the law. Why would we put that burden, and he calls it a burden, why would we put that burden on anyone else ever? And they make a unanimous decision to uh, to write a letter and tell all these churches outside of Jerusalem look faith in Christ is the measuring stick in fact we're going to talk more about But I just need to be clear that you are under a yoke of slavery. If you feel guilt, if you feel anxiety, if you feel a burden, if you feel fear and insecurity in your relationship with God, you are under a yoke of slavery. You're trying to approach God from the perspective of, look at me, God, right? I've got this together. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, look, God didn't come to call the righteous— He came to call sinners, and the truth is, nobody's righteous. So, uh, there's no such thing, right? Jesus came to call people who are lawbreakers. Okay, so then he he wants to uh, go deeper, and he says some pretty striking and some pretty astounding things. Look at verse 2. So, he says, look. So he's about to, as if he hasn't, like, been speaking, like, pretty uh, blatantly so far. He's like, look, I'm going to tell you like it is. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated, now listen, obligated to keep circumcision the whole law. Here's what Paul is saying. So the cornerstone of the old covenant, the cornerstone of a man who loved the law, whose parents loved the law, is at the cornerstone of that, at the epicenter of it, was circumcision. Uh, And, you know, uh, so they would be circumcised as evidence that they were part of that old covenant, what the Old Testament or what the New Testament would call the old agreement or the old covenant with God. And the hallmark, the cornerstone of that was circumcision for every male. And so there were teachers that were teaching the people in Galatia, at this church in Galatia, that yeah, you you certainly want to believe in Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you believe in Jesus, you need to get circumcised, And you need to keep the law. You need to keep some of the requirements of the law. And what Paul is pointing out is he says, oh, no, 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 no. If you get circumcised, you have to obey all of the law, all 635 commands of the Old Testament. That's the burden that you're agreeing to take on if you agree to be circumcised. So uh, what he's saying is, look, if you're trusting in your ability to keep the 635 commands of the Old Testament, you're no longer trusting in Christ Jesus and his righteousness on your behalf. You're leaning out of trusting in Jesus and you're leaning into trusting in yourself. And whatever weight you're leaning into the law whatever weight that is, Christ is of no advantage to you in that weight. There's there's none, right? So he's saying, look, it's either Jesus plus nothing equals everything, or Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And we do this all the time, right? We want to say, well, yeah, yeah, it's good to believe, it's good to have faith and trust in Jesus, but you have to have faith and trust in Jesus and And Paul clarifies that here, right? And so here's what he says in verse 4. And this is such an alarming statement that he makes to these Galatian believers. He says, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And then he goes on to say, for through the Spirit, by faith, we, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now I want to stop there because there's a very unfortunate um, translation problem we have to address. So when we see we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness that we have in Christ. When an English reader, like all of us in the room are, reads the word hope in a verse like that. Here's what we, the way we read it. Well, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Like, we really hope that one day we'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? I mean, like, I hope, kind of like, well, it's a gamble, may not happen. Man, I hope, like, it's wishful thinking. That's the way the English word hope often gets Uh, talked about but in the original language here of the new testament that's not the way the hope the word hope is translated at all the word hope means a confident assurance he's not saying he hopes in the sense that it's wishful thinking or we're keeping our fingers crossed he's saying look we have this confident assurance that we have the righteousness of Christ. And that confident assurance is meant to drive and be the fuel of our lives, right? This hope of righteousness, this confident assurance. So it's not wishful thinking. It's not keeping our fingers crossed. It's not, okay, you know, if we just wish hard enough, maybe it will come true. No, he's, he's talking about hope as a confident assurance, Right? And then he makes maybe the most astounding statement in the whole book. As if this wasn't, like, astounding enough. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself, some versions say faith expressing itself in love. Faith, expressing itself. Faith, working itself out in love. Now listen, this is a destiny statement. This is what is my purpose in life statement. This is your what is my purpose in life statement. So let me, again, just make this very, very clear. Your purpose in life, every day, As a new covenant believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have two purposes and two purposes only every single day. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. You want to know what those two things are? You have a responsibility every day to grow your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus. So there's uh, the vertical relationship, right? Every day, if you can do one thing that grows your faith or grows your trust or grounds you more substantially to Jesus— that was a win. You just lived out your purpose in life. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So if you can grow, if you can get out of bed and you can do something to grow your faith, you're living out the purpose for your life. And if you can figure out a way to love somebody else, now, let me say that differently. If you can figure out a way to love everybody else that you lock eyes with, then your faith is expressing itself in a love for other people. So, listen, this is, this is mind-blowing. Um, this is mind-blowing. This is absolutely staggering because what what the church has done for for decades, what the local church has done, I've done it at this church, I've been guilty of doing this. What we do is we take all the commands in the New Testament and we we put them in a a cup and we take all the commands of the Old Testament and we put them in a cup and we shake it all up and we throw it out on the table and pastors just kind of go, okay people, so if you do all this, right, if you do all these things, you're you good. And no, you're not good, because pastors like me are putting you under a yoke of slavery where you're going to be tempted to approach God from the perspective of guilt and shame and insecurity and a feeling of unworth. So let me just tell you something. If you grew up as a young man or a young woman in a local church, and the only way you knew how to approach God was out of your own righteousness, well, no wonder you left that religion. No wonder you left that behind. I mean, what's good about that? It's just moralism. I mean, moralism is everywhere, right? And when people try to approach God out of moralism, the result is always failure, it's always fear, it's always guilt, it's always shame, and it's always insecurity. No wonder you left that. That's why we are not going to put you under a yoke of slavery at Shelbyville Community Church. At least not ever again, because there was a day when that was the way I preached. No more. I'm done with that, because I want you... I want you to approach God in the way that Jesus died for you to be able to approach God as sons and as daughters and in freedom. Now, some of you are a little fearful right now because you're saying, well, wait a minute. If we just chuck the law... And by the way, there's a big difference between saying let's chuck the law and let's chuck the Old Testament. I'm not saying chuck the Old Testament. Do you know how many times the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament? Do you know how integral the Old Testament is to a proper understanding of everything that we read in the New Testament? Absolutely, we need to be students of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But what I am saying is that when those laws were given, they weren't given to you. They were never intended uh, to be your laws. Those were laws that were given to the nation of Israel. And they are part of what the New Testament writers call the Old Covenant. The reason we call it the Old Covenant is because Jesus came and brought a new covenant for you and for me. And that is the covenant that we are called to live under. And so what I want to do, I just want to walk you through some basic teaching of the New Testament to help you really get your arms around this. Because for some of you, you've never heard this before. And it's so vital that it sink down in and that you understand it. So So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little survey of the New Testament and we're going to look at the remarkable agreement that the New Testament writers have about what we should and shouldn't do and how they boil it down to its essence. Okay? So, we're going to start in John 13. In John 13, Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples, and he is bringing the new covenant. He's talking to the disciples. The whole context for this commandment is in the context of Jesus introducing the new covenant. All right, the new agreement that he's going to make between God and people. And it's not going to be like the old one because the old one was a national covenant. It was given to a whole nation. This one would be uh, a little different. This one would be a covenant that he would make with individuals, which then once they made that covenant, they would become a community or a nation of people, but they become a nation as individuals. So the first covenant was a national covenant. The second covenant was an individual covenant, right? And so in the context of introducing this new covenant, Jesus says these astounding words. He says, a new command I give you. A new command I give you. Now, when we read that, we think, well, that doesn't sound all that new, right? But to them— it sounded brand new, and it's, we need to understand very clearly what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, I'm giving you a new command in the sense that um, we're going to add that command to all the other Old Testament commands. What I'm saying is that Jesus came to bring an entirely better ethic than the law, that he came to bring an ethic of love, of love. And that that is a better ethic than the ethic of the law or the Old Testament. As good as it was for the people of God in that day, as much as it showed the the character and the nature of God in a progressive sense... Uh, You know, this is why David would look at the, the law and he would talk about it. And he would say, man, the law of the Lord is my delight and I meditate on it. Because it was the law of God that made them unique as the people of God, right? But what Jesus is saying is, look, you don't have to rely on the law anymore to make you unique. You don't have to rely on keeping the law anymore to prove your merit or your worth or your mettle to God. You come to God through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Period. End of story. And that means that all of your friends, and most of your friends believe this, by the way, who believe that moralism is what saves them. In other words, they're saved because they're better than so-and-so, or, you know, they, they're a better person than whatchamacallit right? That's what they believe. People believe that they die and go to heaven because somehow God kind of balances it all out on a scale, and at the end of the day, their good deeds weigh just a little bit more than everybody else's. This is what many of you have thought for much of your life, right? This is moralism, and it's just a little twist, on Old Testament uh, religion and moralism. It just is. And so then Jesus says, as, and this is the kicker, he says, by this will all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. And then he says, love one another. And this is so amazing. He doesn't say, love other people the way that you would want to be loved. He doesn't say that that's what many of us think. Well, I just need to love other people the way that, you know, I would want them to love me. No, that's not the way that Jesus commands us to love other people. He says, you love one another the way I have loved you. That's the way. Now, when they thought about how, so when you and I think about how Jesus has loved us, what do we think about? We think about the cross. But when they heard Jesus say, love one another as I have loved you, we have to think, what did they think about? Because the cross hadn't happened yet, right? So they thought about things like this. Well, Jesus, man, you, you wash our feet. I mean, you, you, like, you took us in when no other rabbi would right? I mean, you called us. You've offered us new life. You've eaten with us. You've slept with us. You've told us that you loved us. You corrected us when we strayed off the path. I mean, Jesus, I mean, you just poured your life out for us. You just poured your whole life out for us. This is the kind of love that Jesus is calling you and I to. Not a love one another the way that you would want to be loved kind of love because that's a love based on convenience. No, Jesus says you love one another the way I have loved you. You love one another in a pour yourself out to empty kind of way every single day. That's the new ethic that Jesus came to bring. And it's so powerful and it's so vital. And then he goes on to say, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And I want to show you how these early believers, these early followers of Jesus, interpreted this command of Jesus as he's introducing the new covenant. I want you to to see how they restate it again and again and again. Peter will restate it, John will restate it, Paul won't restate it because he wasn't in that first supper to hear it. But all of the disciples who were there will restate this command in various ways, and we're going to look at some of those restatements. So here's Paul, Romans 13. Paul is the same guy that's writing Galatians that we're reading right now. So Paul's the guy who just said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts. And then look, what he, look how Paul kind of explains this in a different letter, Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I want to stop here because what some of us read that and what we think is, okay, so I keep the law by loving people. I fulfill the law. And so really I'm fulfilling the law and love. And that's true. That's, but, but, but again, I don't want any of us to think that we're accountable to the law right? So let's look at what he goes on to say. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. What's he doing? He's quoting the Big Ten, right? He's quoting the Ten Commandments. And he says, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, here's what he's saying. The word fulfill can have a couple of different meanings. It can mean to accomplish. So, for example, when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I came to accomplish the the law. I came to perfectly live out the law, and He did in such a way that you and I will never need to be put under that burden ever again because Jesus lived it out and kept it perfectly, right? So it can mean to accomplish something, or it can mean the word fulfill can mean to bring to a designated end. To bring to a designated end. In other words, if the law was a plane, Jesus was landing it. If the law was a book, Jesus was finishing it. It's very important that we understand what this word fulfill means. So the call, the ethic of the New Testament, our marching orders, are not to be around don't do this and don't do that and that. Uh, what I would call it is it's a lesser ethic. At the time, it was revolutionary. At that stage of human history, it was mind-blowing. But when Jesus came, he planted and gave us a better ethic. And here's why it's important that we understand this. What I'm telling you is that it answers the question, why? And it's so important to understand this. So in other words, why do Christians say that we shouldn't lie? Why do Christians say it's wrong to lie? Is it because the Ten Commandments tell us not to? Nope. The Ten Commandments weren't written for you. They were written for the nation Israel. The reason that Christians say it's wrong to lie is because lying undermines relationships. Right? Lying interferes with our ability to love one another. Love is the ethic, love is the reason, not the Old Testament law, right, but the law of Christ. Uh, So, John says the same thing. Look at this, 1 John 3, verses 16 and 23. This sounds a lot like Galatians 5, 6. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Wow. Wow. So I'm to have every day a lay down my life for my brother kind of love. A lay down my life for my sister kind of love. And this is his command. Notice, it's one command. It doesn't say, hey, these are all his commandments. He says, this is his command. This is it. It all boils down to this one. To believe. So there's the faith part. What did Paul say? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. What is John saying? John is saying, you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, there's the faith. And then he says, and to love one another as he commanded us. So Paul has said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And now John is saying, look, only two things in life matter, faith and trust in Jesus and loving other people. They're saying exactly the same thing. They're making exactly the same argument. And then James weighs in. Remember James, the half-brother of Jesus? And by the way, if you want to think about how mind-blowing it is that the half-brother of Jesus came to have faith in Jesus, just ask yourself this question. I've asked it a lot here, right? What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? Somehow, Jesus, as the brother of James, was able to convince James that he was the son of God. That's mind-blowing to me. Okay, so James, here's what he says. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture. Now, this is mind-blowing. He calls this a royal law. Why would James call this a royal law? I'll tell you why. Because it was a law given directly by our king. Because it was a law given by King Jesus to any that would follow him. The royal law, it's a royal law because it was given by royalty. The one we worship, the one we adore, the one we follow, the one we've given and dedicated our lives to. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. You are doing well. And this is going to blow some of your minds. A little later in the book of Galatians... Paul calls uh, love the law of Christ. We're going to look at that verse a little later in this series, but he calls it the law. So in other words, there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new law in town, and that law is the law of love. Now, um, as I've kind of taught this to some folks, uh, so every once in a while I'll get a little pushback, and so I want to address one of the Pushbacks that I that I got from this because somebody said, "Well, now wait a minute." In Jeremiah 31, and we'll look at this verse. Jeremiah 31, God promises, right, to uh, to write the law. And when they hear the word law, they say, "God promises to write the law on the hearts of His people." Isn't that a reference to the Ten Commandments? I mean, doesn't God promise to not write the law on tablets engraved with stone, but on the hearts of his people? And I'll give you, when, a, when an Israelite, when someone from the nation Israel read Jeremiah 31, the first thing they would think of was the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay, there's going to come a day where God's going to write the ten, the ten Commandments on the hearts of everybody. But what if that's not the law that the author Jeremiah was pointing us to? What if the law that was going to be engraved on our hearts was a different law? What if the law that was going to be engraved on your heart and mine was the law of Christ? The royal law, the law found in Scripture. And notice, notice here, he says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, right? And I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's just my law, singular. It's not my laws. Folks, it's one law, and it's the law of Christ. It's the law of love, that Jeremiah prophesied would be written on your heart and mine. And, and, and the New Testament calls the law of love the, the law of Christ, right? So that, I submit to you that that is the law that the prophet Jeremiah knew would one day be written on the hearts of his people. And this is why, right, at the very end. So, so let, let me just, um, we're going to do this. So let's get real, real practical about the call of today. I'm saying when it comes to your responsibility to love everyone that you lock eyes with in the context of a day. See, here's the thing. It's kind of a good news, bad news thing. You know, so, hey, it's way less complicated than like following 635 commands in the Old Testament, right? It's, I mean, the law of love is way less complicated, way less complex than that is. But you know what? The law of love is actually far more demanding, far more demanding Um, because it's gonna require it's gonna call something out of you that in many cases isn't in there and this is why it's so important that you be growing your faith and trust in Jesus, that you be anchored and tethered to Jesus, because you're going to need the love of Jesus to flow through you and spill out onto others. Because if you rely, so like if, if you hear me do this, if, you hear, if what you're hearing me say today is, pastor's right, I just got to do better. I just got to love people more, right? And I, I just got to work harder, and I just got to exert more effort to love people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you need to be tethered to Christ in such a way that the love of Christ infuses itself in you and spills over and spills out into other. Because oftentimes, do you know the reason that you don't love people very well? Do you know the reason that you get short and impatient with people? Do you know why you get so angry with people? Because all that is in you. It's not their fault. It's not their problem. That anger is in you. And so the the law of love is so demanding, right? It demands that we stay and live close to Jesus who said, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you try to love out of your own strength, that's bankruptcy. Because you will, because listen, people aren't making enough deposits in your love bank. You You will empty out your account in about half an hour. Isn't it funny how, like, you know, as believers, right, we'll watch like a Hallmark commercial and we'll feel all this love in our heart, right? Like, man, I could just love anybody today. And then 30 minutes later, we're about to put our hands around somebody's throat. I mean, has anybody ever been there? Like, you know, you'll walk out of a church service and you'll think, man, that was the best church service I've ever been in. My love tanks full for the whole week. And later that night, you're like fighting with your, with your spouse or your kids, I mean, listen, the law of love is our marching orders. That is the law that is meant to be written on the hearts of God's people. And this is why in the book of Hebrews, listen to the way the author of Hebrews sums this up. We don't even know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. So this is yet another personality weighing in on this discussion. And he says, listen, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, if there weren't some deficiencies. And the deficiency that he's acknowledging is that the law could diagnose our problem. In other words, the law, like an MRI, right? When you go to the hospital, you go, you get an MRI, it can diagnose what your problem is. But can an MRI fix your problem? No, it can only diagnose the problem, right? It can only lead to a treatment. And in the same way, the law could diagnose our problem, but it couldn't offer us a cure, And so Jesus came to bring the cure. Jesus is the cure. Faith and trust in Jesus is the way forward. It is the way out. It is just the way. Faith and trust in Jesus. So, then he says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And folks, that already happened. This was written in about A.D. 60. Let me tell you a little history. In A.D. 70, the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed. And so, since A.D. 70, for almost, for almost 2,000 years... Uh, Judaism as it was practiced in the Old Testament has ceased to exist. Right, people don't make sacrifices on an altar of animals to appease God anymore, and that was the event. This is the reason that he said, "What is what is obsolete and aging is soon going to disappear." That was a reference to the to the destruction of the temple, which would happen ten years later, and is now well in your and my rearview mirror. All right, so all this to say, let's get real practical and let's apply today's teaching. I want to give you three different quotes, and I want to talk a little bit more about how the ethic of love changes the answer to the question of why. I'm going to do that first. I already ta- said, hey, Christians don't lie because lying undermines and hurts relationships, right? So at a fundamental level, lying violates the law of love. Why do Christians refuse to gossip it's not because the ten commandments tell us not to gossip because they don't right well they do they say don't bear false witness against a neighbor so if you're sharing false gossip I suppose they they do share that but what if it's true you still don't share it why because it violates the law of love why do Christians say that adultery is wrong Because it violates the law of love. The love you proclaim for your spouse, the love that you proclaim for the husband or wife of the person that you're cheating with. Right? Why should Christians stand up against bullying of any kind? Why should Christians always be in the front lines of never being a bully? Because it violates the law of love. That is our ethic. Those are our march- marching orders. And next week, I'm going to propose to you, as we continue to flesh this out, that all the one another's of the New Testament, so things like um, you know, pray for one another and honor one another and give preference to one another and submit to one another, those are all concrete ways that we're called to live out the law of love. So all of those one-anothers of Scripture, every single one of them, uh, flow out of this singular command. In other words, if I love you, of course I'm going to pray for you. If I love you, of course I'm going to honor you. If if I love you, of course I'm going to give preference to you, right? So what if we one-anothered one another in a way that the world noticed? What if you and I took our marching orders seriously and we started loving other people with a lay down our life kind of love? I'm telling you, that is the ethic that our world and our country needs. It does not need the ethic of the old covenant. It does not. It needs love. Think about all the broken families that you're aware of, right? Think about all the people in your life. So so here's the bottom line. And and as as I kind of begin to land the plane, I'm going to call the team up uh, so that they're already up here. But I want to show you three slides. And, uh, And here's the call of what these three slides are. So here's the application of today. So here's the first one. Christ's selfless love for me demands a selfless love for thee. So hey, I just, all you King James folks, I just like hit it out of the park for you, right? Because I got a thee in there, right? So Christ's selfless love for me, Christ's selfless love for me demands a selfless love for thee. Let me say it a little differently. Christ's selfless love for me requires that I do what's best for thee. This is that pour myself out kind of love. This is that lay down my life for my brother or my sister kind of love. This is that love that looks around and says, hey, this may cost me something. It may be inconvenient. It may be hard. I may be too tired. But I'm going to do this anyway, right? And then finally, and this is the one I'd really like to lodge in your brain, when unsure of what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. When unsure what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. Because I'll tell you, at the end of the day, Your marching orders, my marching orders, is to love other people, not the way that I would want to be loved, but to love other people the way that Christ loved me and gave his life for me. Those are our marching orders. And if you're going to do that well, you're going to need to live close to Jesus. You're going to have to be growing your faith and trust in Jesus every single day. So let me pray for you.